Back when I was in high school, my parents visited a church in Modesto, California. They went there for a conference, and I remember they came home and they talked to uh, all three of us kids about that, and I, I've never forgotten it. They said one of the things that struck them is that every service they went to on Sunday morning, and I think they had some Sunday evening and Wednesday night things too, they said it was really interesting. They said, you're going to think this was a cult, but it wasn't. They said every age group, children, youth, and adults that were in the services, they all brought their Bibles and they all, when it was time, they all pulled out their Bibles and they all got their pens ready. And they all, they said, we're not exaggerating, they all were interested. They said, we'd never seen anything like it. And I remember thinking to myself, wouldn't that be great to be part of a church where people really wanted to be there and they really were eager and interested and I remember that, that, that started me thinking, just these questions. Why do some people hunger for God more than others? Why do some people seem more interested in God than others? And also, those of us that say we're interested in God, why does it go up and down for us? What's that about? Well, we want to talk about that today. I want to talk about spiritual hunger with you, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 8. It's the fifth book of the Bible, so it starts pretty early. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we have black ones hopefully near your seat there. You can pull it out and turn to page 127 in the black Bibles. But Deuteronomy 8, again, it's the fifth book of the Bible if you're getting used to your Bibles. And uh, we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But before we do... I want to just mention, if you haven't been with us, where we've been in this series called Family Values, these nine values that God's been teaching us. We're studying these first couple months, our family values, because, you know, sometimes just by naming them, by saying them out loud, it can change what a family does. Um, and so we've been using this phrase quite a bit, this series sentence, that by naming our values, we can live them more what? Intentionally. You ever notice that? Once you become aware of something, you can, you can be more intentional about it, but if you're not aware of it, it just kind of never becomes that important to you. In fact, uh, Annie Stanley, we've used this uh, quote a lot, whatever gets celebrated gets repeated. You know, like in a family, when something happens, if people go, yay, like that, it tends to get repeated more. And some of you grew up in homes where spiritual hunger, spiritual interest, it, it wasn't celebrated. In fact, I know some people... When you grew up, it wasn't not only not celebrated in your home, but it might have even been scorned. And so this may be an interesting kind of message for you. But I know that uh, spiritual hunger is an important subject. And um, so if you turn on the back of your notes, we're going to start there today, you'll see where we've been. We, we, we've talked about how in our church family we value the Bible. We value living as God's stewards. We value right relationships. We value authenticity and excellence. And today we want to talk about this value. We value spiritual hunger. So would you read that four-word four line and then the two lines underneath it with me out loud? We value spiritual hunger because we want to be followers of Jesus who never lose the desire to love and worship him wholeheartedly and know him better. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. And you may say, like, why? Well, if you're following along in the notes, the reality is, is that we're never going to drift into spiritual maturity. No one has ever drifted into spiritual 
maturity, or depth. We talk all the time about how we want to fight shallow Christianity. Well, if that's your intention, if your goal, according to Romans 8, 29, is to become more like Jesus in character and in your spirit, then that's not just going to happen by you getting older. There is this idea that many people have is that if you just get older, you get more mature. Have you ever noticed that's not true? So we're not going to drift into spiritual maturity. And I want you to see today, if you're following along, that spiritual hunger is essential in every chapter of the Christian life. Spiritual hunger is essential in every chapter of the Christian life. There may be some of you here that you've walked with God longer than I have, but you've lost your spiritual hunger. And then we have some people in our church family who they're in their 90s, and their spiritual hunger fires mine. You know what I'm talking about. And so that spiritual hunger we want to talk about. So I want to talk about what is spiritual hunger, what's God's part, what's our part, so we can better understand why, why do some people hunger for God? Why do some people have a greater interest in God than others? And is that something that anything can be done about that? And if something can be done about that, what might it do to affect our families and our city and our world? So I want to talk with you about that. Before I do, you mind if you pray with me? And let's ask God to be our teacher. Now, Lord, I just want to, again, publicly declare my dependence upon you. I, I might be able to give a message that makes sense, but I cannot do the inside work in a human heart that you can do. But I praise you that you can, and I praise you that you have, and I praise you that you will. And so we ask you to use this service today to draw us closer to you and to give us a spiritual hunger. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, what is spiritual hunger? We talk about defining it, and um, I want to just uh, give you this first sentence here. Hunger, if you're following along, means to have a strong desire. If you go to the dictionary, you'll see hunger means a, a strong desire or to crave something in a compelling way. And the idea of strong desire is it's not half-hearted, it's whole-hearted. It's really coming from a really deep place, a really strong place in a person's heart. And the idea here of spiritual hunger is to know and follow Christ. Um, Charles Stanley has put it this way. He says, the Lord has given us a variety of appetites which are essential for our physical survival. But he's also created within our hearts a hunger that is spiritual. Hungering for the Lord is a desire to know and draw closer to him. Sadly, this yearning lies dormant in many believers' lives. They're saved, but they have very little desire for more. One of the problems is that our society is filled with all sorts of things that grab and hold our interests and affections. These pleasures and pursuits compete with God for our attention, claiming our time and effort. The good news is that the longing for God can be awakened if we are willing to change our priorities and pursuits. Although cultivating a desire for the Lord takes time, the joy we'll experience is lasting and the rewards are eternal. You'll always get more out of a relationship with God than you put in. In fact, as your hunger for him comes to life, he will open your heart and mind to understand and desire him even more. 
When we yearn for the Lord, he will satisfy us with contentment and a sense of completeness while awakening an even deeper longing in our soul. Unlike physical hunger, a craving for him is filled but paradoxically leaves us hungry. The more we're satisfied in Christ, the more we want of him. And maybe an illustration would help. Recently, I stumbled upon a movie that I had seen over 30 years ago called Rocky III. Now, I don't know if you've seen the Rocky movies, but they started when I was in high school, so I followed them. And Rocky Balboa had an interesting start there in Philadelphia. He wasn't anybody. But as he became a boxer, he had a drive to become a world-class boxer. And in fact, as so many American movies do, it turned out that he became one. And he won the title, the heavyweight title of the world. After that, he began to become very successful, a celebrity, so much so that in Philadelphia, in the movies, it shows how they install there in the public square, a, uh, on the steps of one of their public buildings, a statue of Rocky Balboa. At the unveiling of that statue, there's a man in the crowd that's quite angry. His boxing name is Clubber. Most of us know him as Mr. T. Here's a picture. We have that there? Yeah. So you can see that he is challenging. And what happens is he calls Rocky out of the crowd publicly. He says, you've been avoiding me. I want the title. You've got to fight me. And they almost go to blows right there in public. They get home, and the guy that had been training Rocky's name is Mickey. Some of you may have seen this guy before in the movies. Mickey, when they get home, is packing his bags. And he tells Rocky he's going on a permanent vacation. He says, why? Why are you doing this? Now, I looked up the script because I don't want to get the line wrong. But when I saw this, I thought, man, this is, this is great. He says, why are you doing this? He says, because you can't win, Rock. This guy will kill you to death inside of three rounds. Rocky says, you're crazy. Mickey says, what else is new? Rocky says, he's just another fighter. Mickey says, no, he ain't just another fighter. This guy is a wrecking machine, and he's hungry. That line really got me. He's a wrecking machine, and he's hungry. And then he says this line, you ain't been hungry since you won that belt. Hmm. What does that mean? It meant that Clubber wanted it. And he wanted it so badly that it was driving him. And friends, when a person has spiritual hunger, they have a magnetic pull. They have a motivating power that is different. It comes from the inside, and it pulls a person forward. And when you and I see spiritual hunger, we need to understand that some things are going on. Now, let me just make a couple observations with you. First, according to the Scriptures, we won't hunger or seek after God on our own if you're following along. We won't hunger, or seek after God on our own. It is always an evidence of the grace of God in someone's life if you see that person hungry for God. I'll come back to that. And I want to talk to you about the paradox. Charles Stanley already mentioned it. You know what a paradox is, by the way? A paradox is something that sounds, it's a statement that sounds contradictory or even absurd, but it's actually true. I like how G.K. Chesterton used to say it. He said, a paradox is truth 
standing on its head to gain attention. It's something that at first you look at and you go, no way. But here's the paradox. As God makes us hungry, if you're following along, we can choose hunger. As God makes us hungry, we can choose hunger. You say, what is it? Does God make me hungry or do I choose hunger? Yes. There is something about the way God works that he wants us to be very involved in the process. He will not do all the hungering for us, but neither will he expect us to be hungry without working in our lives. And uh, an illustration of this really helped me years ago. Some of you were part of our church when we went through the Experiencing God study. Tremendous thing in our church. And in Unit 2, Henry Blackaby tells this story I've never forgotten. He says, the church I was part of began to sense God leading us to an outreach ministry to the college campus. I had never done student work. Our church had never done student work. Our student ministries department recommended that we begin with a Bible study in the dorms. For over a year, we tried to start a Bible study in the dorms, and it did not work. One Sunday, I pulled our students together and said, this week I want you to go to the campus and watch to see where God is working and join him. They asked me to explain. God had impressed on my heart these two scriptures. Romans 3, 10, and 11 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And John 6, 44, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. I went on to explain, according to these passages, no one is going to seek God on his own initiative. No one will ask after spiritual matters unless God is at work in his life. And when you see someone seeking God or asking about spiritual matters, you are seeing God at work. I told our students, if someone starts asking you spiritual questions, whatever else you've planned, don't do it. Cancel what you're doing. Go with that individual and look to see what God is doing there. That week, our students went out to see where God was at work and join him. On Wednesday, one of the girls reported, Pastor, a girl who has been in classes with me for two years came to me after class today. She said, I think you might be a Christian. I need to talk to you. I remembered what you said. I had a class, but I missed it. We went to the cafeteria to talk. She said, 11 of us girls have been studying the Bible and none of us are Christians. Do you know somebody who can lead us in a Bible study? As a result of that contact, we started three Bible study groups in the women's dorms and two in the men's dorm. For two years, we tried to do something for God and failed. And for three days, we looked to see where God was working and joined him. And what a difference he made. One of the reasons we value spiritual hunger is because it is an evidence that God is at work in someone's life. Therefore, we want to always be a church family that when we see that in someone, that we cheer those people on, that we recognize that God is doing something gracious and that's not to be taken lightly. And as I said to you when I came back from the sabbatical, one of the things that really has God has burned in my mind is that I have got to stop trying to be hungry for people and spend my time primarily with those who are already hungry. I don't want to ever stop caring for people that are far from God. In fact, I'm going to be part of a Bible study in these next few weeks during the lunch hour with some people outside of the church in our community. I have a heart 
to try and reach out to people that don't know God. But I want to tell you, I'm going to spend the majority of my time trying to encourage those who are already spiritually hungry rather than trying to get them to be hungry when they're not. I want to join God. And I want to just see how he's working evidence of the grace of God. And I'm so thankful that there is such a core in this church of you that are hungry for God. But so, how does God make us hungry? I know you opened to Deuteronomy 8. Let's look at that together. And I'm going to have you read verse 3. I'm going to read verse 2 and verse 16. But when we get to verse 3, I'll ask you to read out loud with me from that first gray box. So here we go. This, by the way, in case you don't know the background on this, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, and it's Moses is recalling what God has already done, how he's already taken the people through the wilderness, how he's led them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And now they're looking back and just remembering some of the lessons they learned. So here we are in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2, 3, and verse 16. First, verse 2, and then I'll invite you to read verse 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Now, I just want to stop and say something to you. Many people believe that those 40 years of wandering were wasted time. Isn't it interesting that he says, remember how God led you? God was still working. He was still leading. He was still doing things, even though that might be considered wasted time. And I just want to say, I wonder if someone this morning needs to hear this. God never wastes time. And he never wastes experience. So he says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Sometimes when we go through wilderness experiences, you know what they do? Those things test us, don't they? They reveal what's really in our heart. They reveal what's really important. Now verse three, let's read that together in the gray box. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now verse 16. He says, He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble you and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. I love that. Someone after the last service asked me what manna was, and I just realized that, again, some of us have had different experiences. Manna was what God provided for 40 years. He provided it like dew on the ground, and it was like flakes, and they could eat it. And it was like bread with kind of a honey taste. And so he provided that for 40 years. Amazing. They'd never experienced anything like it. God showed them that he could do things they didn't know about. So let's just look at these lessons about how God makes us hungry. First, number one, if you're following along, God makes us hungry by emptying us of pride and self-sufficiency. God makes us hungry by emptying us of pride and self-sufficiency. I just want you to know something, that if you and I are going to ever be hungry, it's going to always involve becoming humble or being humbled. There's no other way. One of God's toughest jobs is to take you and I and remove our pride and self-sufficiency, our self-satisfaction. Because so many times what it does is it prevents us from trusting him, being open to him. We keep ourselves just in control that way. But God's desire is to empty us of pride and self-sufficiency. Why? Because the number one danger to hunger for God, friends, is complacency. 
It is something that so easily creeps in in all of us. It's that spirit that says, I don't need you. I can do life without you. And that kind of thing is just bad news. In fact, I don't know if you know, I talked about a church at the beginning of the message. Here's a church that didn't quite have that same spirit. Some of you may have read the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's one from Revelation 3. This church was a church in a town called Laodicea, which is modern-day Turkey. Here's what Jesus wrote. I know all the things you do. By the way, he knows all the things we do in this church too. That you are neither hot nor cold. You know, it's just, I wish you were wholehearted one way or the other. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Have you ever noticed that lukewarm water can make you gag? He said, you say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your what? You notice that? indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will, this is a strange thing right here, what he says, we will share a what? A meal together as friends. He's saying, I I have ways that I I can work. I'm inviting you to turn from your indifference, man. I'm calling it out. And I I wonder if you're hungry again to be with me. I'd love to share a meal with you. Wow. He wants to empty us of pride and self-sufficiency. I want to just say something. Aren't you glad? Is there anything uglier in you or me than pride? The problem is, who are the last people to notice pride in themselves? Proud people, right? But God will lead us through ways where he will humble us and test us and reveal what's in our heart in order not to ruin us, but so that it will go well with us in the long run. The second thing is that God makes us hungry so he can feed us in ways we've not known. So he can feed us in ways that we have not known. In your message notes there, you may want to underline this phrase that says he humbled you, causing you to hunger. You may want to do that, but you'll notice that it says then feeding you with manna, dot, dot, dot. Here's the rest of the part after the dot, 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 which neither you nor your ancestors had known. In other words, I'm able to feed you in ways that had never been experienced before in all of human history. And that was nothing for me. I can feed you. What's that, what's that mean? It's a metaphor as I can fill your life. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God has a way of filling us with a kind of food, a kind of nourishing quality for our souls that we don't even know a lot about. He's that gifted. And he promises that we, he can do that. Jesus once said to his disciples after he had just been hanging out with, with this woman at the well having an important conversation that eventually changed her life and the whole village's life. The disciples got back and they had brought him some food and he says, I have food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. God's will fills me up. Wow. You know, a lot of you have told me over the years that sometimes you've gone through a season 
where all of a sudden God permitted you, you maybe have read a Bible verse a hundred times and all of a sudden, boom, it was exactly what you needed to hear from God. Some of you have told me that you were going along and you just, you, you got to the end of yourself and all of a sudden, he inserted a thought across the ticker of your mind that you knew, that you knew, that you knew was not your thought. But it was from him. He has a way to feed and fill us in ways that we may not have known before. But do we believe that? The third thing is that God makes us hungry to teach us what truly matters in life. God makes us hungry not just to make us uncomfortable, but to teach us what really matters in life. You notice what it says? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's literally true, friends, by the way. Do you realize that if God decided right now to sustain your life without any food for the next 40 years, he could do it? All you have to do is say the word. He's that mighty. But he has chosen to use physical food to help sustain our bodies. Isn't he kind? But he's saying, if you think that all there is to this life is the physical, the material, the sensual, you don't understand what really matters. All that stuff's going away. It'll never satisfy your soul. And deep down, you know that, or you're coming to understand that. I'm the only one that can teach you what really matters in life. You know, there's an example that I list out to the right in Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul who we regard as such a winner with God, do you know that he had a spiritual hunger, but it was a self-righteous spiritual hunger? So the first 30-some years of his life, he gave himself to being Mr. Religious, and he was good at it. But it caused him to hate Jesus Christ, and it caused him to persecute the church that Jesus started. And so he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, and Jesus changes the price tags in his life. The things that Paul used to think were so important, now he doesn't think they're as important. He realizes what's most important. And we see this in Philippians 3, if you look up here. But all these things that I once thought very worthwhile, now I've thrown them all away so that I can put my trust and hope in Christ alone. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have put aside all these, counting it worth less than nothing, in order that I can have Christ and become one with him, no longer counting on being saved by being good enough or by obeying God's laws, but by trusting Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, counting on Christ alone. And then he goes on in verse 10, and I've listed that in the second grade box. Would you read it with me out loud, please? I want to know Christ... Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then he goes on and says, not that I've already obtained all that yet, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And the rest of my life, I'm going to hunger to know Christ. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't write this verse in the first year of his life. He's not a baby Christian. He's walked with Christ. He's been through beatings. He's been through all of it. And everything has purified even more. So now what he says is, look, I'm clear on this. I want to hunger to know Christ with the rest of my life because it's the only thing that really matters. 
It took me a while to learn this. I'm kind of stubborn, but I've learned that, and that's what I want. Hunger, I want to know Christ. This is my testimony. By the time I was 15, God began a work to humble me and show me that even though I had all this spiritual knowledge, this Bible knowledge, it was nothing because I didn't know him. And so one night in my bed, I cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, if you want me to know you, you're going to have to open my eyes. I do not understand. I can, I can comprehend these things. I can repeat them back to people, but I don't understand how they affect my life. And when I cried out to the Lord, he began a month later to open my eyes. He began to feed me. And I had been so caught up with knowing the top 40 songs in the radio station and be popular, all that kind of stuff. And once I met Christ, I realized that was worthless. It was fleeting compared to knowing Christ, which was valuable for every moment of my life. And he started a hunger in me that is still burning. And yes, it wanes and it fades, but he's showing me how. He did that gracious work in my life. And I wonder if he's done that gracious work in your life. And you're here today and you know it. He's giving you that hunger. Praise his name. But that's not where it stops. Remember the paradox? What I learned is that even though Christ started a hunger in my life, I also had to go through seasons when I would lose that hunger or it would die down, that I had to choose hunger. And so I want to talk to you about how we live more intentionally. What would it look like in our church family if you and I were to choose hunger? Because friends, you know this. You know we can preach a whole message in this. We can put this on paper. We can say we value spiritual hunger. But if you don't value spiritual hunger, if I don't value spiritual hunger, do we value spiritual hunger? No. So just before I talk to you about being intentional, can I just ask you, let's just stop for a second. If you were to take your hand, your five fingers, and just put them in your lap, and just what you think about where you are on this first Sunday of February, 2015, with one being the lowest and five being the highest, what would you say that God would say your level of spiritual hunger for him is right now? You don't have to show anybody. But would you be able to come up with a number? And whatever that number is, what would it look like if you became even more intentional? That could happen. That can happen. So how does it happen? Well, Dallas Willard uses this three-word across, um, what do you call it, with three letters, V-I-M, to talk about how you and I can grow into spiritual maturity. We can become more like Jesus. We can know Jesus more deeply. And V-I-M reminds us of vim and vigor, that we can go at things with vim and vigor. So let me unpack that real quick as we bring this home. First of all, to live more intentionally, we need a vision. We need a vision. And he uses in his book, Renovation of the Heart, this picture. He says, let's say that you wanted to learn Arabic. And now the reason you want to learn Arabic could be for several reasons. One, you're moving to Saudi Arabia or some nation they speak Arabic. Or because you know someone that speaks Arabic and you want to be able to talk with them. Or whatever reason it was. But you've got this vision of, I want, I see what could be. If I can speak Arabic, think of what could happen. You have a vision. And if you're following along, here's the first part, is that you and I need to see God's invitation to know and become like Christ. When you and I see that Jesus is inviting us into this life with him, 
that really can fill our souls, that really can become the foundation of a full life, then, man, that's absolutely powerful. Some of you know Psalm 34, 8. This is something David wrote in his joy of knowing the Lord. Let's read it together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So that's the invitation. Come on, taste and see. I'm inviting you into this. Second, the intention. The intention. Again, if you want to learn Arabic and become fluent in Arabic, it's not just enough to see the possibility of it. At some point, you have to make a decision. And Dallas Willard says, this is where it gets a little tricky. Because a lot of people say they intend to, but they haven't really ever gotten to a place where it's a heart intention. So one of the things that struck me about Paul is he says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. What's he saying is, look, I intend to do this even if it's painful, even if it costs me something, even if it's hard, I intend that and I'm going to live it out every day. So intention, if you're following along, means to choose to hunger and keep hungering for him. To choose to hunger and keep hungering for him. To want him and keep wanting him. And then we find ourselves not wanting him to go, oh man, man, I'm not wanting him like I want to get back to that. Luke 10 tells this great story where Jesus is with two of his friends, Mary and Martha. They're showing hospitality to him and Martha's getting the meal ready and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet as a woman in that culture, this would have been amazing. She was listening to Jesus teach. She was so starved for what he had to say. And so Martha somehow has gotten all the price tags wrong, and she starts to think that this meal is more important than Jesus. And so she says, Why, Lord, aren't you going to tell my sister to help me? So listen to what Jesus says to her. This is so helpful. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, the New International Version says, has chosen it, and it will not be taken away from her. What was she, what did she choose? She chose to be hungry for Jesus and what he had to say. And he says, I'm not going to take that away from her. The meal, you know, it's going to come and go. But this opportunity is a once in a shot, and she's taken it. She's chosen it. She intends you know, where are you at? Do you, do you intend to hunger after God? Well, then what are the means? You know, how? And God has given us means, and if you're following along, it's to practice the spiritual disciplines he's provided. To practice the spiritual disciplines. When you hear spiritual disciplines, some of us go, ugh. But really, these are the means of grace that God gives us. Let me just mention four, if you're interested in writing these down. First is prayer. Prayer and when I think of prayer, I mean crying out to God. And sometimes it may not even be verbal, it may not be audible, but it's just from the deepest part. Oh God, I don't know you, I hunger for you, kind of like I did when I was a young person, like I've done many times since. Second is fasting. A year ago, Steve and I gave a couple of messages on this. If you want to go back in the archives and learn more about that. But this is something I've really appreciated practicing. It gives you a way of being very intentional where you say, God, I want you right now in this week or this chapter of my life more than I want food. Nothing wrong with food. But if I make that, if I, I want to set that aside so I can focus more on you. Third thing is to feed on God's word. 
Now again, I don't just mean read it. I mean chew on it. I mean meditate on it. I mean really take it in. Years ago, I heard a story of a pastor who had a chance, the privilege of visiting with Billy Graham and his wife. And uh, Billy Graham already had Parkinson's by that time, so he would get tired by the middle of the day. So the friends said, and we, we better go. Thanks for hosting us. And they're in North Carolina. And uh, what happened is, is Billy Graham says, wait, before you go. And Billy Graham opened his Bible, and he handed it to the pastor and said, before you go, would you feed me with God's word? I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And the fourth thing is other believers who are hungry, hungry for God. Have you noticed that sometimes other believers can make you even more hungry for God? And that somehow by being part of something where other people are always, that God uses their hunger to help your hunger, he can do that. And so I just want to close by asking you to imagine with me if we become more intentional about this. Imagine what could happen in our homes if one of us became more hungry for God. Yeah, they might be scorned, they might be ridiculed, but how many of us know that it was because of a parent or a son or a daughter or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent My grandparents used to say to me in their 70s, Jeff, the more I know the Lord, the more I realize how much I still have to know. How many of us could we could imagine what could happen if we give ourselves to this? And friends, I just want to mention one more thing. What could happen to our city if they start rubbing shoulders with us? They may see a hunger for God in us that might begin a hunger in them. And I long for that. I long for our city to become more hungry for God. So let's, let's sing a song now called Everything, which just comes back to the reminder of Christ, you are what really matters. And as we prepare for communion, let's sing this to Jesus.